Time marches on and leaves behind those who are not equipped for tomorrow. We cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we at Regent University aim to prepare you for it. With world-class professors in over 150 programs, the opportunities to find success in your field are many. So don't let tomorrow pass you by. The journey to your brightest future begins here. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Tuesday program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. You're listening to the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to answering Bible questions. Whatever's on your heart and mind, maybe it's your Christian experience, maybe you're struggling with something in life, uh, maybe you just have a question about the Bible. We'll do the best that we can to answer your questions. You can call us at 340-9585. That's 340-9585. And by the way, I'm going to have to remember this. That's a 210 area code. If you're outside the local area code and want to call, you can call toll-free by dialing 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send questions in via our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Uh, Just hit the call now button. You'll be connected directly to what I understand today is a very busy production studio at the the radio station offices. One more time, 340-9585. We don't have anything going on today, so we can get right to questions. Let me get to the first one. Uh, I'm going to take this one first. I could actually spend a whole hour on this and bore everybody to tears, uh, or I'll just do the best I can in a very short period of time uh, to answer what is a very difficult theological question. It's from our email inbox, and it's from Mick. Uh, He asks, why are Jesus' genealogies in Matthew and Luke so different? And I don't mean that one goes back to Abraham and the other to Adam. I mean, for example, Matthew lists Joseph's father as Jacob. Luke lists Joseph's father as Heli. Uh, Another translation, Mick, is Eli, E-L-I, without the H. Uh, Matthew traces the line through Solomon. Luke traces it through David's son, Nathan. I know there is no contradiction, but I seek to understand why such meticulous record-keeping would result in something other than two identical layouts. Now, Mick, the truth of this is very, very difficult to understand. I'll give you the short version, and then maybe I'll give a little, a little bit more in terms of details. Uh, the short version, and, and this is the most commonly accepted perspective, is that uh, Matthew's genealogy, Matthew the most Jewish of all of the gospel accounts, Matthew's genealogy traces uh, Jesus' lineage from his supposed father, Joseph. Now, we know that Joseph wasn't the father, but uh, in a Jewish construct, the, 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 the genealogies were always in the father's uh, lineage. So that would be the simplest explanation. And then Luke gives the family tree of Mary rather than Joseph. And the, the problem with that is um, because family trees were, were always traced through the mail uh, in that time and culture, um, there are some that don't accept that. Um, I think what we need to understand here is that whoever was reading the genealogies at the time they were written understood clearly what was being done. 
uh, we've sort of lost connection with it and we don't understand. But again, the most commonly accepted explanation is that one is Mary's, it's Luke's gospel. Uh, the genealogy is through Mary's line. Um, he, he's establishing that both Joseph, uh, as established by Matthew, and Mary are royal heirs to the line of David. Uh, and it was done in Joseph's name um, because that was the way it was done, and people would have understood. Now, the truth is, Mick, we don't really know. Um, we don't really know. I'm going to be teaching this in just a few weeks because we've just started the book of Luke, and um, I could give the most boring Bible study ever. And what I've always chosen to do is just go through the genealogies um, and point out notable names, and that's something that I think is, is um, I think, the best way to actually teach it. Um, again, there are differences of opinion. Um, there's two main options. Uh, the first, as I said, is that, the, that one, Luke, is the genealogy for Mary, and the other is for Joseph. Um, the other is that even though it was clearly known at the time it was through Mary, uh, the other one, it's the genealogy is mentioned through the father, Joseph, the, the supposed father, Joseph, simply because that was the way things were typically done. Now, Luke... Um, gives us Jesus' genealogy. Uh, Matthew traced Jesus' lineage through Joseph um, and Luke through Mary. Um, but, but that's all we know. And, and any more of an explanation, I just stumble all over myself and really wouldn't be able to make it any more clear. There is a lot of information on it. Let me give you just a couple of of uh, places that you can go for a genealogy. I think the one that um, is is the one that most people here would know would be D.A. Carson uh, in his uh, new Bible commentary. Um, D.A., the initials, Carson, um, Jameson and Fawcett uh, also is uh, an excellent resource. So there are resources out there. But the truth is, nobody really and truly knows. Um, so that's really all I can offer on the subject. Here is a question from, let me see, I've got to get to it here. From our mobile app, this one comes from Emily. Um, she wants to know, how do I explain having a personal relationship with Jesus and what biblical references can I give to support this? Emily, I'll give you one, but, but the idea is this whole idea of a personal relationship um, comes throughout Scripture. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Come to me, not come to a religion, not come to a church, but come to me. Um, that's from Matthew chapter 11. Um, Jesus said to his disciples, uh, and by extension to us, abide in me and I will abide in you. The idea has always been this, this sense of oneness with Jesus in the spirit. Uh, the Greek word for fellowship throughout the New Testament is the Greek word koinonia. And it literally is a spiritual intercourse. And, and it's, it's having that, that, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. So um, those are some basics, but literally all of the New Testament, all of the New Testament comes uh, to the conclusion that, that Jesus is calling us to himself. He's calling us to a person, and he's asking us to surrender all. Offer yourselves as living sacrifices, uh, Paul says in Romans 12. In view of everything that God has done, offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes to the churches at Colossae, uh, set your heart and your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of glory. Um, so it's a relationship that, that that's it's mental, um, but it's also social and emotional. Uh, the, the mind is the place of decision. The heart is the place of affection. We're to offer all of that to Jesus. So the idea there is that we come to him to have a personal relationship with Jesus. When he says you must be born again to the most religious man in Israel in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, 
Uh, Nicodemus had the same problem, Emily, as your question posed. Well, what does that mean? It would be unthinkable for a Jew to presuppose that he uh, could have a relationship with God that's personal, that's any more than, than sacrificial, or as we say, religious. So the idea is from cover to cover, uh, it's what Abraham wanted, and it's what everybody in the New Testament wanted. As a Christian, it's the one thing that we should dominate. Now, let me take just another couple of minutes on this, Emily, because um, the, 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 the concept of having a personal relationship is clear. But why do we want one? Why do we need one? And the answer is because there's no other way that we have access to God. Jesus said to his disciples just before he was leaving, he said, up until now you've asked the Father for nothing. But now you can ask in my name. Why? Because access was opened. I always think, Emily, with questions like this and conversations like uh, this about personal relationship, I always think of when Jesus, when he gave up his spirit and he died, and we're told in the Gospels that the temple, um, the curtain in the temple, separating the the, the holy place from the holy of holies, the most holy place, uh, it was torn in two from the top down. As though the hand of God did it himself. And it was at that moment that we had access to this personal relationship. Jesus says in Hebrews that he calls us his brother. It's certainly a relationship. He says to his disciples in the Gospel of John that he calls us friends. That's indicative of a personal relationship. And it's the one thing, in fact, it's the only thing that we who are born-again believers in this New Testament construct should desire. If you've been listening to this program for any any length of time, Emily, you've heard me say it a hundred times, just be with Jesus. That's the personal nature of the relationship that he so desires. He didn't desire our sacrifices. He doesn't desire our church attendance. He wants all of us, our hearts, holding nothing back. And the only way that's possible is with the personal relationship with our Lord. So, Emily, it's the most important thing that I'm going to be asked today. It is the one thing every Christian ought to desire for. I said I'd, I'd stop there, but one more thing. Instinctively, isn't it true, from the moment we get saved, we all want to be like Jesus. We want to be used for his glory. We want to be more and more like him every day. And the only way that can happen is if we are having a personal relationship with him every day. Not just on Sundays or one day a week, midweek when you go to church service, but every single day offering your heart to him. What about me and what about today, Lord? And when we begin to understand that, that's when we begin to really grow in Christ-likeness. The more time we spend with Him, the more like Him we'll be. The richer our lives will be, the fuller our hearts will be. So, Emily, I hope that answers your question. Here's a question that's different but similar. I hope that makes sense. It's from Edward. Pastor Ron, do you prefer liturgical church or evangelical church and why? Um, Edward, by liturgical, um, I know you're you're talking about uh, churches that take a literal view of of communion. And by the way, there's communion. That's that Greek word koinonia again. So it's the same word as fellowship. Um, but, but, but churches that are liturgical that, that have sort of religious overtones in it. Uh, an evangelical church, I guess that's commonly, uh, you refer to what we commonly see uh, here in the West, especially in the United States, uh, a church where worship is uh, louder and involves music. And uh, there's a greater emphasis on teaching the Bible. Well, I, I prefer, obviously, what we do here at Calvary Chapel. Let me explain why. And I, I want to say that rather than giving it a, 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 a name or a, or a category that we belong to. See, Jesus didn't die. He, and he didn't come and live in us for rituals. I always think of the first chapter of Isaiah's prophecy 
Jesus speaking to a very liturgical people, the Jews who came to him on the basis of making sin offerings and, and consecration offerings. And Jesus says to them, because they're living in sin, they're, 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 they're rebelling against God. And he says, you know, the things that you do, these new moon feasts and festivals, my soul hates them. Um, when you spread out your hands before me, I will not hear you. Um, he detests the sacrifices made in hypocrisy. So I don't know why it is we think that we can have a relationship with Jesus Christ through religious exercises. We cannot. We have a relationship with Jesus. He said, to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself every day. Pick up your cross and follow him. And that's what the Bible teaches. And if we lose that model, and this is the model, Edward, that, that I think is given to us as the model for how to do church from the, from the first church, Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit was poured out and Jews began getting saved and then later when Gentiles would come into the church. I think it was um, um, just that's the model that we're supposed to follow. And that's how we have a relationship with God. So Jesus died so that he could live in us and through us in a relationship. And I think when we make it make our worship liturgical. We sort of have a, I can do things and justify myself before God, or I can do things and be accepted by God or, or, or make God pleased with me. And what I think the Bible teaches is that we're accepted already in the Beloved. And what we have to do is understand that and enjoy it. So I prefer a church model, Edward, where the Holy Spirit is in control. I don't mean silliness. I don't mean laughing. I don't mean falling down and everybody speaking in tongues at once. But I mean where the the church is alive and vibrant because the Spirit of God is leading. And the best way I know how to do that is to teach the Bible here at Calvary Chapel. We teach it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, and I think that's the best way to let the Spirit lead in the church. So that's my preference, Edward. I hope that makes sense to you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Oscar. He says, since God knows when we will die, is there anything that we can do to extend our lives? Um, Oscar, I'm going to answer this from, from heaven's perspective and from I'll do this first, our perspective. Of course there are things that we can do to extend our lives. Uh, we can be healthy, we can eat healthier, we can um, get rid of the, the things that we know are causing us difficulty. I think one of the things that amazes me the most about the youngest generation, those just now going into adulthood, you know, college and high school and, and those making their ways. How many smoke and how many drink when we know the evidence is overwhelming that those things are bad? Um, I look at older generations of people from the first group I mentioned all the way up to people in my age category and beyond, and you look and you just see so many people who are unhealthy. I see people who are really struggling with obesity and in our city, of course, diabetes and other things. Uh, and, and certainly we can extend our lives by paying attention to our health. So from the perspective of Earth, yes, there's a lot of things we can do to extend our lives. Now, here's the rub. From Heaven's perspective, God, of course, knows the exact day we're going to die. Now, Oscar, he doesn't cause that day. He just knows it. So let's just say that I decided I'm going to get really healthy so I can live a longer time. And the things that I did extended my life five years. Well, that would be pleasing to the Lord. But he still knew all along that I was going to die five years later than I would have had I not paid any attention to my health. So we can't change what God knows in terms of when we're going to die. But we can certainly impact the quality of our lives and in the process uh, lengthen our lives uh, in terms of how much longer we'll live healthy than if we didn't pay any attention to our health. 
Now, Oscar, just sort of off topic, but in the same general category. Uh, I believe that every one of us as born-again Christians owe it to Jesus to be as healthy as we possibly can so that we can serve him fruitfully for as long as we can. I think we need energy, and I think we need strength, and uh, to see so many Christians completely ignore their physical health is really a sad thing for me. People that I have seen that are really, really gifted, and I'll just speak about my own church, people that are really, really gifted, but they're so unhealthy, God can't use them. Now, there's nothing that we can do if, if we get a diagnosis of cancer or we have a heart attack or something like that. But I'm just talking generally here. The people who are not physically fit enough to serve the Lord need to repent. We need to repent. We need to say, Jesus, I want to be used. And I think that's really pleasing to the Lord. You know, Jesus said that we're to to be anxious, waiting for his return. But until he returns, we're to occupy what we can't occupy if we can't move. So I think we need to pay attention to our physical health. And I personally believe that honors the Lord a whole bunch. So, Oscar, I hope that answers your question. Here is a question from our email box from Nacho. You've taught in past sermons that the only example of a godly marriage in the Bible was that of Priscilla and Aquila. My question is, would you consider Zechariah and Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1? They're described in verse 6. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Is it perhaps that Zechariah and Elizabeth are still considered in a different light because they're part of an Old Testament principle rather than Priscilla and Aquila who are in the New Testament or perhaps their ministries are focused by God to be separate callings in marriage? Um, Good observation, Nacho. Uh, Zechariah and and Elizabeth are not um, New Testament couple. Now, obviously, they appear in the pages of the New Testament. I just taught on them. Um, last week here in our first study in the Gospel of Luke. Um, But their relationship with God was based on law, based on ritual and observances. So I don't really consider them. When I always talk about that, um, the only example of godly marriage being those who are are in the New Testament, uh, it's because only then can we understand the concept of sacrificing uh, self for the benefit of somebody else. And only in the New Testament, being filled by the Holy Spirit, are we able to understand that we have the power within us to be able to to make those sacrifices. Uh, You know, I could go back to Ruth and Boaz in the Old Testament, and they uh, appear to be a a godly couple, and um, certainly Boaz was smitten with Ruth, uh, and she felt blessed to have him. Um, but, But in terms of couples that serve God in one accord, uh, we're only going to find that in, in the New Testament. And the only people, as you said, that I can find are Priscilla and Aquila. And Nacho, you know uh, that I think uh, that they're set aside because the the value in their marriage, the, the, the oneness in their marriage, comes from the fact that they were both committed to using their gifts to serve the Lord. Uh, they weren't in competition with one another. They weren't worried about... Um, who's right and who's wrong. All they wanted to do was serve the Lord. Now, a very quick comment on this movie that came out not long ago about the life of the Apostle Paul. Um, I, I, I like, for the most part, the, the portrayal of Priscilla and Aquila um, in the movie, with one exception. Um, the movie didn't presume that Priscilla and Aquila were walking together in one accord in the area of should they stay in Rome or should they move. We know from the movie, we know biblically and from history that, that it was a very brutal world for a Christian to be in. Now we know that Priscilla and Aquila had homes in Ephesus. And because they did, um, they also had a place in Rome. But 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 all they would have had to do, and, and based on the character that we see from them in our New Testament, all they would have to do is pray, Lord, what do you want me to do? Instead of the debating back and forth about should we go, should we stay, it's dangerous. Um, there are people who simply are presented to us in the pages of the New Testament as really committed, spirit-filled believers. And I don't think there would have been that kind of arguing and discussion. But 
Uh, I, I do believe that that's the only example of a marriage that I can hold up in the New Testament and say, this is a marriage that really and truly pleased the Lord. Now, obviously, there are, are, are people that got saved and were married and loved Jesus together with all their heart. But I'm just talking about the examples that were given in the New Testament. Hope that helps you, Nacho. Thank you very, very much. Thomas, um, I've got less than one minute now. I've got one minute, so I don't want to answer Thomas's question yet. Uh, Oscar, let me go back to your question very quickly about since God knows when we'll die. You know, in the in the Old Testament, there's one example of uh, of a man whose life was extended for 15 years. It turned out to be the worst king in Israel's history. Um, Manasseh uh, also turns out that he repented and he'll be in heaven. But God extended his life. But here's the question. We know that God knew he was going to extend his life, so God wasn't surprised. We've got 30 minutes left in the Tuesday program. We would love your live phone calls and questions. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. You're listening to the Word of Santa for Life. I'll be back on the other side of the break. We'll see you in two minutes. the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to our last 30 minutes on tuesday 340-9585 for your live calls and questions here is a timely question from our email inbox it's sent anonymously uh, a brother in my church shared with me that he does not put his, in his tax claims on the 15th of April, but rather he applies for an extension for the sole purpose of not allowing the government uh, to get his money any sooner. Is that okay to do? Anonymous, it is okay. Now, I, I want to be careful because I don't know your your friend or your brother in the church, but but I will say we really need to watch our hearts. Now, nobody likes to pay taxes. Nobody, nobody, nobody. But if we become embittered about taxes, uh, we're really in a, a dangerous place, a place that the enemy can take advantage of. Uh, as long as we who are Christians obey the law, we're on solid ground. So it is okay to file an extension um, because it's legal to do so. And I know that people who have to pay uh, want to wait as long as they can to pay. Um, you know, the government takes our money and uses it all year long, and when they give us a tax refund, we don't get interest on the money that they held for us throughout the year. So, um, yeah, it's perfectly okay to do that. It's just, um, it, it's a heart issue. And if the, the the brother in your church is hard as right with God, then I have no problem with it. It's just something that we can become bitter about. And we're not to be bitter citizens. We're to pay what we owe. We're to pay our fair share. Not anymore, but we're to pay our fair share uh, with a joyful heart. Um, doesn't mean you have to like it, but your heart can be filled with joy because you're rightly representing Jesus. I can tell you that as I say... Uh, my check went in the mail today <laughs> to pay uh, our income taxes, our personal income taxes. And uh, it's never a fun thing, but um, we have the privilege of living in this wonderful country. We have the privilege of enjoying the wonderful advantages that being a United States citizen has. Uh, and the fact that our government is messing up and doing things with the money that we don't like, none of that matters. We're paying our fair share. So, Anonymous, I hope that answers your question. 340-9585 from our email inbox. This is from George. I am fond of this woman, and every time I talk to her about Jesus, she shuts me down. I'm very sure that this woman is supposed to be the wife God is calling me to marry. What should I do? I've been praying for her and praying to God, asking for more maturity. Do you have any advice? And then he says, 
peace be with you, Pastor Ron. And the original letter said, Father Ron, uh, I am not a Catholic. I'm not a priest. I am a pastor. George, uh, a couple of things. Um, The one thing I can tell you for sure is that God is not calling you to marry this woman if she's not a born-again Christian. I know sometimes that hurts. Throughout the year, dozens of times people come and say, well, I'm dating this person. I'm sure God brought her in my life or him in my life. And my first question is always, well, are they born again? Well, no, but, well, then it's not God calling you to do it. So it's very important. Now, if she was born again, George, she wouldn't shut you down. So here's what you have to understand. Your emotions get involved. You're attracted to somebody. But the only person that God would really bring into your life, or as you said, call you to marry, would be somebody that loves him. A very strong exhortation not to be unequally yoked in our Bibles. So to marry somebody who doesn't love your Jesus is simply something God would never, ever ask you to do. Let me tell you a quick story, George, and I hope this resonates with you. Many years ago now, young woman in our church, I've known this young woman uh, since she was 16 years old, uh, and she was always, after she got saved, she's always coming to me and saying, um, God brought this man in my life. Maybe this is the one. I think this is the one God wants me to marry. And I would say, and this is after she was a little older than 16, but but I would say, no, God wouldn't bring an unbeliever. And she would say, but Pastor Ron, and she would have a million reasons why she was sure it was. No, I'm sure that God told me God would never tell her. Now, she didn't marry any of those people. And even though she complained about it a little bit, she, she didn't date those people. One day she came to me, years go by, she comes to me and she says, I think there's a guy. I think this is the one that God's going to have me marry. Now, she'd been hurt, and we'd had those sort of head-butting sessions before, so I wanted to be sure that she wouldn't get hurt again. I asked her the guy's name, and she told me. And, well, I didn't necessarily, I had no problem. The guy was a Christian and and, uh, was fairly new to our church at the time. She waited and waited. Um, Finally, he asked her to marry him. Turns out this summer I'm going to ordain him as a pastor. So she got a really good deal by waiting. George, all of that to say, don't let your emotions be confused with God's direction. And if you're talking to somebody about Jesus, sharing your heart for the Lord with her, uh, and she shuts you down, she's not a believer. No, there's nothing wrong with asking her, well, why do you shut me down every time I want to talk to you about Jesus? Get the answer. Her answer probably because I just don't want to talk about that. I don't care anything about Jesus. I don't believe. Well, then you know for sure that she's not the woman that God is calling you to marry. And when you said, I'm very sure that she is, it demonstrates, George, that you don't really understand your Bible. Can you imagine living with somebody for life? who isn't going to be in heaven with you. I can't imagine living with somebody who doesn't love my Jesus the way I love him. Now, we could be attracted to people, but but when somebody's an unbeliever, George, what you have to do is just right at the beginning just say, no, off limits. That is not from the Lord. Hope that helps. Hope that brings some clarity. Here is a question from Thomas. He wants to know, why are there contradictions in the account of the number of angels at Jesus' tomb? Thomas, I know what you're saying, so don't misunderstand what I'm going, how I'm going to answer. But I would say, if you were here face-to-face with me, I'd say, show me a contradiction. And you wouldn't be able to. You would say, well, in one gospel, there's one angel at the tomb. In another gospel, there's two angels at the tomb. Well, that's not a contradiction. Now, had the one angel gospel said there was only one angel at the tomb, then we would have had a contradiction. 
But that's not what it says. It's just that when we talk about the one angel, it's because that's the one angel who's speaking and his focus is on that. So there's no contradiction. Um, one writer, and, and that's why I think it's really important to have four different perspectives on Jesus' life by virtue of having four different Gospels. It lends credibility. It's just one is focusing on the angel that spoke. The other uh, is is sort of backing up and getting a bigger picture and, and indicating that there were two angels. One spoke, but that there were two angels. So there's no contradiction at all. I had somebody who really wanted to take me to task on this uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Thomas. And... Um, uh, I said, uh, I, just as again, because there was somebody else in my office, I said, well, what would you say if you went to somebody today and said, you know, I went and talked with Pastor Ron? They'd say, well, that's what I would do. I would say, I talked with Pastor Ron. Well, there's somebody else in this room. Why wouldn't you mention him? Because he's not important. You're the one I'm talking. And then he got it. Then he got it. So I hope that helps. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. We have Celia from Bandera on line one. Celia, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Uh, yes, sir. I I was having a conversation with a lady the other day, and she was raised in the Baptist church. That's not my faith, but that doesn't matter. And she was talking to me about she had learned so much more about the Bible by listening to Dennis Murray from Shepherd's Chapel Church. Are you familiar oh, no. with this? Yeah, it, it's uh, it's uh, Arnold Murray. Yeah, Arnold um, and his dad with yes. Dennis, and yeah, she was. And I was, she was explaining to me, like, okay, um, Eve did not eat an apple in the garden, and he translates from the Hebrew, uh, from Hebrew and stuff, and I was like, uh, she said, Eve didn't eat an apple, she had sex with the devil, and that's why Cain and Abel, and I was like, holy moly, yeah, Celia, this this guy, he, uh, I I think he's dead now, um, but but if he's still alive, I I, I I may be mistaken, but I think he's he's dead. But it's um, it's Arnold Murray. He is a nut, uh, a false teacher, a heretic in every every stretch of the word. Now here's the problem: he's very convincing, and he's very talented. And so he has a devoted follower. He's out of Arkansas, I think, and he uh, he has a, a devoted following. It's called the, the, the Serpent Seed Doctrine that he espouses. Uh, but it is contrary to everything our Bible teaches. And your friend, Celia, is in a lot of trouble. If she's listening to him, she hasn't learned anything about the Bible. What she's learned is is nothing but lies and heresies. And uh, I know you care for her. Just let her know that this is not true it's heresy, and while he may be a good communicator, uh, what he's communicating is absolute poison. So whenever what somebody teaches contradicts so clearly what the Bible teaches, um, we know we've got problems, and um, uh, please let your friend know that, uh, that she is in a very dangerous place, and she's not learning anything at all about the Bible. Hope that helps. Thank you, Celia. He is dead. Thank you. Uh, my producer just looked it up for me. He died in 2014. Um, unfortunately, his teachings are, are living on, and you can find them all over the Internet. Um, uh, the, he's on radio stations in some parts of the country, especially throughout the South. Horrible, horrible, horrible. Thank you for calling, Celia. Let's go to my friend Tanya in San Leandro, California, online to Tanya. Thanks for calling. You're on the air. Tanya, you're there? Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you? I'm doing well, Tanya. Good to hear from you. It's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be able to speak with you today. My love to you and Mama Paula. 
Um, I you. pray for you guys, and I love. I pray for the listening audience as well. And I know back in back a while, um, there was a question about the judgment, and I'm a little confused, Pastor Ron, about the order of which the judgments. You know, the Bema seat, the judgment mm-hmm. of the nations, and the great great white throne. If you could help me try to, um, I, I'm I'm confused. Is it something that we all? We're not going to experience, you know, I'm confused who's going to be doing what or who will be at okay. what. So if you could give me just a, um, some clarification, I really, really would appreciate it. I can do that, Tanya. Give my love and Paula's love to your family for us. Thank you for calling. You got it. You got it. I'll see okay. you guys soon, okay? Okay. okay. I can't Thanks. wait. Bye-bye. Um, Tanya, the, the, the Bama seat um, will be the first judgment, um, and that's only for believers. And it's not a judgment for salvation. That issue was settled uh, when we were born again. When Jesus came to live in us in the person of the Holy Spirit, uh, our heavenly fate was sealed forever. Uh, the judgment seat of Christ, you can find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You can also find it in Romans chapter 12. Um, uh, is a judgment of works. And I think Paul does a masterful job at literally translating. It's to see whether your works are good or good for nothing. I think the, the, the English translations say good or bad, but the word uh, in Greek that's used for bad is, 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 is better worthless or good for nothing. So our works are good or good for nothing. Now, what that means is that when you stand before the Lord uh, at the Bema seat, and, and, and it's probably not going to be like this, but I always picture it. It helps me keep it in mind uh, properly. Uh, I see this big chest of rewards, crowns of righteousness, and he opens them, and Jesus wants to hand them to us. And as he examines our works, what he's going to be doing is examining our heart, our motives. He's going to be examining whether we did it for him or for ourselves, whether we did it to get noticed by other people or whether we just did it because we love them. Giving is an example. Uh, people give every week because they feel in church compelled to give. I had a question yesterday, Tanya, from somebody who said that uh, they went to a church and the pastor said, if you don't tithe, you're going to go to hell. Well, people who tithe because that pastor made them f- afraid of not tithing, well, that's not giving to God at all. And so there's going to be no reward. Can you imagine, and again, just in this this area of giving, can you imagine standing before Jesus and you've got sort of like all your receipts. Oh, I gave you this, I gave you this, I gave you this. Jesus will say, I didn't need your money. You gave it with a, a begrudging heart. Or you gave it because you felt guilty if you didn't. So that would be described as a good-for-nothing work. Uh, maybe you volunteered to serve, but you did it just because you wanted to be noticed. I've had people who would come in, and, and especially worship leaders, and um, they say, well, I, I just want to lead worship. I'm gifted to lead worship. Um, we've given them the opportunity to to worship with children's church. No, I don't want to do that. I want to worship in, in, in adult church. Uh, those are people who just want to be on stage. So the, the idea is that's a good-for-nothing work, and those works, Paul says, will be burned up in the fire, um, wood, hay, and stubble works. The other works, the gold uh, and so precious stone works, those are the ones that are going to survive the fire, and those are the ones that we're going to get rewards for. So the Bema Seat of Christ is a judgment of believers. That's going to happen, Tanya, when we are with Jesus. Now, some will say it's going to happen at the rapture of the church, uh, I personally believe that when we go and stand before the Lord, um, he's not going to be able to wait to give us our rewards. And so I think that's going to happen uh, when we go to be with Jesus. So um, if we die before the rapture, I think we're going to get that Bema Seat judgment then. At the rapture of the church, it's going to be great Bema Seat judgment because we're all going to be judged for receiving rewards or losing rewards, again, not for salvation at all. Uh, the judgment of nations, uh, separating the, the, the sheep and the goats, uh, that's a judgment that's going to happen uh, at the, uh, uh, in the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Um, they're, they're gonna, one's going to be on his left and one's going to be on his right. Uh, that's a judgment that's going to be determined by how people treated uh, God's people Israel. 
if you are pro-Israel, if you're supportive of Israel, if you pray for the peace of Israel, uh, if you're actively engaged in some cases in ministry toward Israel, then uh, you will be with the sheep, and those who were against him will be goats, and they'll go to the left. Um, the, the difference will be between cursing and blessing in the millennial reign. Um, the great white throne judgment will come at the end of the thousand years after Satan is let loose one final time. During the entire millennium, Satan is going to be bound. Uh, he will be let loose because the people who have served God in the millennium won't have had a choice to do it of their own free will. They will have been compelled to. Jesus is going to rule with an iron scepter. Um, so those who are led astray are going to be cast into the lake of fire, uh, and as will everybody who's ever lived and died apart from Christ, they're going to be cast into the lake of fire, and that's the final judgment. Uh, after the thousand years are over, after the people are, are thrown into the lake of fire, um, then there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and there will, from that point forward, never be another judgment. One other thing, Tanya, that, that um, people get confused by with regard to the different judgments, is once we're in heaven with Jesus, we're not going to mess up. Once we have a, a body like his, our glorified, resurrected body, uh, all of the darkness will be gone. Uh, so, so we're not going to have a, 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 an opportunity to miss out or to mess up uh, and somehow escape um, or, or not be able to escape being judged. Uh, there's no backsliding in heaven, so don't worry about that at all. Tanya, thank you for the question. Again, it's good to hear from you. Um, may the Lord bless you and your family. Here is a question from Jake. I know you don't believe there are prophets today, but Paul talks about prophets being given to the church in Ephesians. How do you explain that? Well, Jake, uh, when Paul was writing the book of Ephesians, there were prophets. He was one of them. In the book of Acts, you see prophets, real prophets, identified. Philip's four daughters were prophetesses. Agabus was a prophet. We know that um, um, Simon um, was a prophet. We know that Stephen was a prophet. Uh, all of the writers of the New Testament were prophets. So they were a foundation that the church laid, but that the church is being built on, according to Ephesians chapter 2. Um, but there were real prophets then. Uh, we just started the Gospel of Luke. We, we know that by writing the Gospel of Luke, and having preserved in Scripture and writing the book of Acts, well, we know that Luke was a prophet. So there were prophets at the time Paul wrote Ephesians, uh, and prophets were necessary. And the reason they were necessary, Jake, is because there were no um, New Testaments. So a prophet always spoke the Word of God. We have the full and complete revelation of the Word of God, but they didn't have that. Remember when Jesus said to his disciples, just as he was getting ready to die, I have... Uh, more to say to you, much more, more uh, things that you can't even bear now. But when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will lead you into all truth. Well, one of the ways that the early church was led into truth was by prophets who were the Word of God. You know, we'll sit down. Uh, I've had counseling the last couple of days, and, and I'll sit down. We've got a Bible that we can open it, we can appeal to, and say, well, this is what it says. This is how you change your behavior. Um, you know, that's, that's what prophets did in the first century church. Um, they were God's living, breathing word. And as long as there was no written Bible circulated, um, that was how people learned what to do. They, those are the people that, that heard the voice of God uh, and, and spoke for the Lord. They, they're people that could go into towns and say, this is what the Lord says, and solve issues. So um, there were prophets when Ephesians was written. We have to remember, though, that when Ephesians was written and the Bible began to circulate, uh, the Word of God changed forever. It wasn't the, the rhema word, the spoken word. It was the logos, the written word of God that revealed who Jesus was. So I hope that helps, Jake. Thank you. Uh, Yoli wants to know, um, what is the difference between Sadducees and Pharisees? Well, 
Um, not much difference in, in terms of the way they appear in the pages of our New Testament, Yoli. But the main difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees is that the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection from the dead. Uh, they didn't believe in anything supernatural at all. They were strict constructionists. They, they, they believed only in the first five books of Moses. Now, here's something that's a funny contradiction, Yoli. Though they believed in the first five books of Moses, they didn't believe in the miraculous. If I remember right, the parting of the Red Sea is in the first five books. So it was just funny and inconsistency. They believed in what they could see, feel, and touch. Nothing more. The idea of life after death, the idea of, of uh, supernatural power and miracles um, was completely off-putting to them. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they did believe in, in, in resurrection. They believed in life after death. They believed in miraculous power from God. That's why they were always asking Jesus, well, show us a sign that would uh, give you the authority to say and do the things that you're doing. So that was the difference. Now, we see that the Pharisees um, were the prominent party in power. When Jesus was alive and in, 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 in his ministry here, uh, but they so botched Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, the whole Jesus problem that, that we find very soon in the early church that the Sadducees had sort of taken over the reigns of the religious Jews. So that was the primary difference. By the way, a lot of the Pharisees became believers. The Sadducees did not. Why? Resurrection. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525.